0: Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard, I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Our guest today is Robert Goddess, President and Chief Technical Officer of Brillouin Energy Corporation. They are developing the Brillouin Hot Tube. A Lenner based heat reactor with applications in hot water heating and steam generation. Robert Gottes has 30 years' experience as an inventor of technology with applications in handheld data collection, user interface, and packaging, to distributed data collection and control. He's the architect of the Brillouin hot tube and has a functional model of the energy-producing mechanism using controlled electron capture reactions to guide the engineering of a commercially useful technology. Robert Goddess, thank you for being with us today.
1: It's great to talk to you again, Ruby, it's been a long time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's start with your technology. You are one of the few groups engineering a commercial Leonard heat generator. Talk about the Brillouin hot tube in marketing terms. What are the kinds of applications you're going
1: for? So the, the applications that, that, are, that are rolled out first kind of depend on the development as it, as it progresses. The model that Brillouin Energy is going to follow sort sort of more like Intel where, you know, Intel makes the chip and you can buy a laptop or a computer from anybody or a server from anybody and a little sticker says Intel inside. So you will see products, hopefully in the not too distant future, it it all kind of depends on funding, um, that will say Brillouin Energy inside. And... You know, we've I've been talking with, with uh, my colleagues and we're probably going to come up with uh, uh, a couple of different types of stickers There'll be or logos. There'll be ones that, you know, are going to be good for 20 or 50 or 100 years, kind of like the platinum or, or gold, the gold standard. And there'll be ones where, you know, they're just the cheapest damn thing you can get. And they'll say, you know, Brillouin inside or whatever. But no, no guarantees on how long it's going to last. That's kind of up to the OEM, that's producing it. Energy is the largest commodity for all of humanity. And once this technology takes off, the demand for energy is going to skyrocket. Right now, because energy is a zero sum game, if the people on the Pacific Rim were to start consuming one fifth as much energy per capita as we consume in America, we can't extract carbon from the ground fast enough to meet the demand. Forget about the weather uh, or the climate. Um, um, the, just the demand can't be met. And once this technology takes off, everybody, all of humanity will be able to enjoy you know, hot and cold running water that's clean. Oh, my God. You have no idea, well, you might, but there's a lot of people that have no idea how transformative that will be for actually a disturbingly large percentage of the Earth's population. Um, so our intent is is to license the technology, and we intend to license it far and wide. Uh, we already have sold uh, or negotiated both uh, licensing agreements for the rights to the technology, to uh, a large middle market manufacturer in South Korea, a, uh, a large industrialist family in Canada, and a uh, large industrialist on the Pacific Rim. I don't think we're actually at a liberty to say exactly who that, hmm. who, who or which countries that are in. Uh, those are in. They are. They are going to have the the rights to. Um, uh, at this point in time, but uh, uh, all of those resulted in a not a huge, but uh, <laughs> huge, huge to us. <laughs> Some of m- upfront money, non non refundable, and very generous licensing agreements. And they signed those with us because uh, they realized that we're trying to gain those rights uh, once we have. Functional products on the market was going to be way too expensive, and they they you know recognize that it's a risk, but it was one they were willing to take, uh, and it it helped us keep moving forward. You know the capability for this technology is really phenomenal, and it depends. You ask the initial question was you know what's what's going to come out first. The requirements to actually get to market mean that. You have to be able to produce a thousand tubes and have 999 of them work. That's like that's just to get an OEM to say, "Yeah, okay, we'll license this technology.
0: Hmm.
1: You know we'll We'll actually give you a, a big upfront fee because you're at a point now where we know that our pass rate coming out, and, and I will feel comfortable knowing that the amount of scrap at the end of the, the hot tube manufacturing line, the, the catalyst rod manufacturing line, that we aren't going to have just an outrageous amount of scrap because the, the, the demand is going to be huge. So at 2x, between 2x and 10x, there are spot markets that get bigger and bigger as you get closer to 10x. For instance, here in Berkeley, where we've got you know Star Trek weather, I was I was almost shocked that we, we got down to 40 degrees Fahrenheit last night, that's like really cold here. Um, so we don't use our furnace a whole lot, but at 6X, it would be cheaper for me to heat my house. I bought my house in 1996, and one of the first things we did was replace the rusty, dusty old updraft furnaces with a hydronic heating system, because back in 96, I already was very clear that I was going to be building a super efficient boiler. So at 6X, it would be cheaper to heat my house with electricity and Brillouin energy technology than with natural gas, which is pretty cheap uh, compared to electricity here in, in Berkeley. Once you hit 10X, you can actually, and people are like, well, you should be able to generate electricity at 3X. Well, theoretically, that's true, but I'm an engineer, and the reality is, that if you want a capitally cost-effective, uh, very profitable power station, 10x is kind of where you have to be to, to get that. Uh, and at that point, at, at 10x, you can build uh, larger or fixed infrastructure power generation systems. As you move towards 20x, those power systems don't get they they not only get more e- efficient from a capital standpoint, but as you start to approach 20 X, you can have drag along, um, power generation systems. So like those big, uh, generators, electric generator, diesel powered electric generators that are, that are trailer drag along, to for to outdoor rock concerts and venues and stuff mm. that can start to come online. And, uh, you know, at 10 X, you could probably do big ships and things where you've got large amount of space and, you know, the ranges, it makes it really, really attractive. Those things you can start to do at 10 X as you move towards 20 X, uh, somewhere in there, you'll be able to do rail systems. Uh, locomotives have a lot of, a lot of room, mm. um, things, things like that. Once you hit 20, 20 X, you're around the point where it will fit under the hood of your car. And we can start licensing automobile type things and fixed wing aircraft um, between 20 and 30. Yeah. It gets big and people are like, well, there's really no point in going beyond 10x. Actually, yeah, there there is, because what you can what you can provide just continues to scale the higher your multiplier. So It's a big market out there that that this can address to completely decarbonize humanity's uh, energy footprint.
0: Uh, Well, that sounds great. And uh, I also want to mention for new listeners that when you say 10x, you mean 10 times the original energy input. You get 10 times back out.
1: As thermal energy, that's right. Thermal energy can be, energy can be measured in all different kinds of, of units, ergs, joules. Uh, there's energy and power, and power is energy over time. So watts is is actually power. Uh, a watt is a joule per second. Joule is a measure of energy, and a watt is a joule per second. So 10x means that for every one watt of electrical energy you put in, you get 10 watts <clears throat> excuse me you get 10 watts of thermal energy out
0: Robert the reactor that you're designing to make heat Is based on uh, LENR, and you're using nickel and regular light hydrogen, which comes from regular water. SRI International, a research laboratory in Menlo Park, California, released a technical report on your isoperabolic hydrogen hot tube in March of this year. That was based on a year-long evaluation conducting over 100 experimental runs performed on 34 different nickel-coated cores. Can you talk about what you were trying to achieve during that last year of SRI testing, and do you think you succeeded?
1: Uh, What's a little disappointing is SRI dissolved the material science group, which Mm. was the group that we were working with. They dissolved that largely because of the way the government the government got rid of uh, cost plus billing for research in in energy they couldn't it was actually a money losing proposition to take government money to work on on energy uh, and all uh, a whole bunch of different material science oh. things so there were it was no longer economically viable to work on e- even clean coal. <laughs> Out when they dissolved that division, which is kind of laughable. You know the idea of clean coal, but um, yeah. But but they uh, you know they they uh, that that whole division closed down. It wasn't it wasn't just LENR that got that got uh, uh, removed from from SRI. But working at SRI was really great, and that that report, that last report that you're referring to. Was what happened in it took till March to really finish the report, but it basically covered between December of 2017 and December of 2018. Um, was that last year we've actually been working with SRI since 2012, initially. The, the section uh, that, we're, that we're working with was headed up by Mike Bacubri, who was lured away by big bucks from Microsoft to set up an L.A.N.R. Research Lab in, I think, Lubbock, Texas. And Fran Tanzella, who was really the, uh, the doer, but really great to work with and tremendous depth and breadth of knowledge. Uh, and has really helped us uh, talk out talk out problems did while he was working at SRI. He would every Wednesday. We have uh, an all hands meeting and he is almost always, unless he's, you know, hiking in the Sierras or something on the call with us and, and has uh great suggestions and input and helps us uh, troubleshoot calorimetry issues when they crop up and uh, just a, a great contributor. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, Dr. Fran Tanzella presented that SRI evaluation in a paper for ICCF 21 last June. Has there been any new developments
1: since then? There there has. The big thing that happened is for... For a while, we've been working on improving the, uh, the Q-Pulse technology. Uh, Q-Pulse is a quantum compression uh, impulse generator that we use to actually control and drive the reaction. And since then, we didn't have the funds to, to finish that while SRI was, was uh, still had a material science division. But, yes, it was end of September, August, end of August, we finished that new, uh, that new design, actually got it built and put into the system. Since then, we have been able to dramatically increase uh, our control over the impulse generation, as well as the amount of power and the repetition rate.
0: So and this what, is the Q, the a new Q pulse uh, generator that you're talking about.
1: Yes, hmm. what drives the reaction is there's agreement between many, uh, probably not all, but uh, certainly a lot of people in the field, people like Peter Hagelstein and and Fran and Mike and uh, and others, that the reaction is both driven and the output energy moderated by something called phonons, which is kind of like a photon, but it's sound, it's vibrational energy as opposed to electromagnetic energy. What the Q-pulse does is it sort of synchronizes and aligns the, the random it's also a measure of the, the temperature of things. The average energy, uh, phononic energy in most biospheres is somewhere in the 0. 0, uh, 0. 0. 0.03 electron volt range. Electron volt is energy. Mm-hmm. And you get a Boltzmann distribution around that, and that's temperature. So mm-hmm. the average temperature uh, where where you and I are at is somewhere around 0.03 electron volts. The impulse function that we drive through the uh, like a tidal wave of electrons that we drive through the lattice in order to, to catalyze the, uh, the reaction. As the energy level goes up, the amount of, of energy that you, that you have to imp- impart to the system to get the electron capture events to take place kind of goes down a little bit. But that's uh, that's what has allowed us to get up to. We can very very reliably uh, at any point now uh, our catalyst tube number seventy two. Uh, at any point, we can turn it on and break two x by a, a little bit, not a huge amount, but very clearly over two x. And yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that's very exciting, and it's, and that's using. The the dynamic stimulation in that report, it talks about the methodology used in 2017 versus the methodology we're using now. The methodology we're using now included the background energy put in through a band heater to warm the system up a little bit to raise the level of phononic energy within the system. Mm -hmm. But this new Q-Pulse board allows us to produce enough heat and impart enough energy into the system that we don't even have that resistive heater going anymore. It's driven entirely by the Q-pulse.
0: Well, Robert Gaudis, you are now able to get more than twice the thermal energy, thermal power output with your Brillouin hot tube reactor. Now, you have a, a model of this reaction and this model involves the controlled electron capture reaction. Can you describe in layman's terms what that process is, and how does this model inform your experiments moving forward?
1: Right. So it's, we use an, an, an impulse function, which is uh, just a, a very sharp spike. It's... <clears throat> It's what a hammer imparts to a nail, basically, um, is, an, is what an impulse function is. And the the so we actually since, since the last time we talked, we got a technology assistance package from Pacific Northwest National Labs. They said, what what you know, what do you want to simulate? They said, one thing that nobody believes can happen is that if you just simply confine a proton with some electrons in a box, when the box gets small enough, the proton will capture an electron as a natural energy reduction mechanism. And the researcher attack gives you 40 hours of some researcher's time. And he said, that'll never work. I said, yeah, that's what everybody says, but you know that's what I want to do. And if it doesn't work, I'll fold up perluent energy, go work for someone else. I can make a lot more money than I've been making <laughs> doing this so far. <laughs> and he said, fine. He comes back three weeks later. He's like, yeah, that actually worked. So understanding that this uh, and and I'm saying I say this like I know because I personally feel like I know, although I don't have as much proof as people can say, well, that's just your theory. And it's like, yeah, that's that's true. It's just my theory. But assuming that this is actually the underlying physics of how the reaction works—that tells you how, if, if you're clever, that tells you how you can design your system to take advantage of that. And the way that you can take advantage of that is by designing systems like the, the hydrogen two. I was just talking with uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Gage yesterday, and we were laughing. I see "You know, this is driven by an impulse function." <clears throat> And you can't weaponize this technology because the half-life, which is how long it takes for half of the hydrogen force to decay, is uh, about the same as the EV range is about 0.03 seconds um, for half of it to decay. So it just, it's just, it's in, in physics terms, it's incredibly slow. What makes a hand grenade so destructive, it actually has, there's very little energy in a hand grenade. But it all gets released in about 10 to the minus six seconds. And that's what makes them so dangerous is because that sudden release of energy uh, sends metal off in in all directions at a deadly speed. We said, you know, there's actually more energy in a candy bar than in a hand grenade. And if you want to do a lot of damage to a building, feed that. Chocolate bar to a college <laughs> student. <laughs> and it'll be much more effective than a hand grenade. <laughs> you get a lot more damage. <laughs> Anyhow, um, well, we digress. So, uh, so sort of what we're doing is the uh, uh, is the impulse to cause uh, super confinement of hydrogen within there, and that. Super confinement, along with you know the the energy that you get from from squeezing things, the energy uh, the energy goes up much more quickly as you squeeze things than as you pull them apart. Um, that allows you to hit that that uh, very very high energy level, not as high as it takes to overcome the uh, the Coulomb barrier to to uh, achieve the strong nuclear binding force that you would need for. Traditional hot fusion or dd fusion but it is the ultimate screening because once that proton absorbs an electron and becomes a neutron because you're converting an immense amount of energy into mass that neutron forms and it's ultra ultra cold and because it's so cold its uncertainty of position is quite large which means that There's no longer positive charge, so another hydrogen ion can tunnel into the location where that proton used to be, but it's now a neutron, an ultra-cold neutron, and as soon as it tunnels into that location, they bind, and that binding energy is where the source of the heat originates from, Mm -hmm. so it's an endothermic step where you put an impulse function through to stimulate the creation of neutrons. And then it's exothermic steps, where when you go from protium, which is just a proton, to deuterium, which is a proton plus a neutron, that releases 2.2 units of energy. So you're minus around the 782 KeV, which is a very large number. We'll just call it 0.8 MeV, or Mm -hmm. 0.8 units of energy to create a neutron. So you're minus 0.8 units of energy to create a neutron. A little bit less, but we'll just round it up to 0.8. You're plus 2.2 units of energy when you go from protium to deuterium. Tritium, you add another neutron to the deuterium to get tritium. That reaction releases 6.2 units of energy. So now you're minus 1.6 units and you're plus 8.4 units of energy. Hmm. You create a third neutron and you get something called hydrogen 4, which has a 30 millisecond half life. And when it ejects an electron or a beta particle, you get an X-ray, but it's inside of a metallic reactor system. And that X-ray gets thermalized, turns into heat. And 20.6 units of energy come out. And that's where you really are starting to wield the power of nuclear energy in a system where the closest thing to penetrating radiation is penetrating radiation, X-rays. penetrating radiation but that is completely thermalized and all the energy comes out so now you have nuclear energy minus the nuke the Mm -hmm. only radiation is beta particles and x-rays which are thermalized and the rest of the energy comes off in the form of phonons which are very very high frequency sound waves or heat and that's what makes this such a disruptive possibility, probability, something that is actually going to radically alter the the course of of, uh, this third rock from the sun.
0: In this reaction, you're using protons to capture electrons to make a neutron that is ultra cold and then has an uncertainty in its location which allows another proton to tunnel into its location and to essentially fuse together. Yep. And that would make deuterium, I guess. Is that correct? Yep.
1: That is correct. And the form, formation of deuterium actually releases more thermal energy than the energy it took to create the neutron. But that's the smallest step of the energy output ladder.
0: Mm-hmm. Because then you just continue on with another electron capture and then another one and just creating a larger hydrogen four, which then decays quickly.
1: Correct. Hmm. Quickly is a a relative term. I mean, it's 30 milliseconds, 0.03 seconds is an eternity. When I first started working on developing this technology, there's a a website, nndc.bnl.gov, uh, most people go, well, what the hell are you doing there? <laughs> um, but <laughs> when I first started working on this, they had, they had the half-life of hydrogen 4 is 4.6 MEV. Uh, that's a Heisenberg uncertainty thing where you can, you, when, time, when time scales get really, really short, it's more because the 4.6 MEV in time would be uh, around 82 yactoseconds which is 10 to the, 10 to the minus 28. I mean, it's just, it's like, well, yeah, we'll just call it 4.6 MeV. Uh, and so they, they had that as the half-life of hydrogen four. It didn't actually come out on the, on the NNDC website until ninety five, nineteen ninety five. 1995. So when I saw that, I started calling people at the NNDC and asking questions. Well, wh- where does this come from? Because I was like, well, it would never work. And, and I've, first time I built a a test system that validated to me that this was worth pursuing, uh, it was clear that it was working and that the way that it was working followed my hypothesis about what made it work. And so I started calling people at the NNDC up and saying, what is the ground state? What is the ground? Oh, I don't know. Call this person. I'll call that person. About the sixth person I talked to, I said, you know, what is the ground state? He said, oh, well, Here at the NNDC, the ground state is the lowest energy level at which we've seen something. I said, well, what was that for this? Well, go here and put in 4-H and and you'll see. And it took me six months to figure out what that said. (laughs) But what they were calling the ground state, which is, you know, you're sitting on the ground, around 0.03 EV, average energy level, was an 8 million electron volt collision between something called a pion and a lithium-7 nucleus. No, that's like 10 times hotter than the core of the sun. It's like, yeah, no, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing. (laughs) And uh, so years went by and people said, well, you know, we don't believe you, you know, that it would undergo that. So I went back and I I interacted with uh, uh, two of the other people who are the authors of a paper called A Equals 4. Doctors Tilly and Wheeler at Duke University in in North Carolina. And they wrote back to me and they said, yes, Dr. Goddess." <laughs> just assumed I was a doctor. I've got a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering, but anybody asking <laughs> the type of questions I was asking, they just assumed I was a doctor. Dr. <laughs> doctor doctor Goddess. Dr. Wheeler is in England right now, and uh, I want to confer with him before we get back. That's fine. And they eventually wrote back and said, Yes, it will undergo a beta decay reaction uh, resulting in helium-4 uh, if you can produce it. If it's possible to produce it be- below 3 MeV, which we're, we're targeting an uh, uh, operation at somewhere below 700 degrees Celsius and 1 ev. Is over fifteen hundred degrees Celsius, which is just an insane temperature to try and build anything commercially useful at. Because mm. pretty much everything melts at that temperature, um, and not everything, but a lot of things. Uh, certainly, anything that you would you know use to generate uh, electricity directly can't operate at that temperature. You know, there you have it. And, but as a result of all of those interactions, and I asked him, I asked those guys about. You know, why do you have for, you know, why do you continue to, you know, it should be made clear on the website that what you call the ground state is the lowest energy level at which you've seen something. So the compromise was they got rid of the 4.6 MeV on hydrogen 4.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um,
0: Well, Robert got us this reactor that you're building uh, makes Lennar heat. And of course, this is a nuclear reaction, and LENER is a process that uses no radioactive materials, and we don't see any radiation escaping your reactor. Let me ask you, after this reaction occurs— how does that energy dissipate into the space? doesn't obviously blow up. It doesn't happen all at once. We're not seeing radiation. How does this energy then dissipate and create a nice sustaining
1: heat? So the... Uh, people who have you know looked carefully at this field have probably seen pictures that looks like volcanic vents on the on the surface of a uh, of a, of a material and um, and that's that happens when you have so much energy in so much hydrogen in there that the first reaction, remember it's driven by phononic energy, and the energy is dissipated by phononic energy. So if you have a really large amount of hydrogen in the system, when the capture neutron capture reactions take place, the system actually, if it chains, so the first reaction triggers a whole bunch of more electron capture events, which then triggers an immense amount of activity in a very small location, and it melts the material. You get those volcanic vent looking things. Because we're actually controlling the rate. We don't need to have that ultra, ultra superhuman loading required in in other systems that are operating below, you know, a thousand degrees Celsius to, to get it to run. So we generate a few neutrons. They accumulate. They react. The heat dissipates through the metallic lattice. You can give it a chance to everything to settle out, and then you send another impulse function through the lattice to generate some more neutrons. So that is how we are able to, to control the output, because the output comes off as in, in, as in the form of phonons, and you just have to give those phonons a chance to dissipate for a while before you go to, uh, to, to, to create some more of them.
0: Well, let's talk about the engineering task now. You just had a new breakthrough. You're getting twice the amount of input power in your cell, yet the lab you've been working with, SRI, uh, is no more. How are you going to continue forward re-engineering this device, and what's, what's next?
1: So, Mike and Fran, who have been helping us with this with this effort, provide a, a lot of brain power. But <laughs> the, the work, and, the, and they provided a lot, of, a lot of elbow grease in actually running the, the test systems there. And, you know, we disassembled the systems in Berkeley and moved them down to SRI. We had them work with us to reassemble them and install some of their own equipment for measuring and, and whatnot. But the test systems that were down at SRI are now up in our lab in Berkeley. We now have four test systems in our lab in Berkeley. You know, every time a few more dollars come in, we build more catalyst tubes, more catalyst rods to uh, to, to further the the manufacturing engineering. So what's what remains to be done is engineering work. It's not it's not so much scientific work. It's mostly Development. So, yes, it, there is some research involved, but it's a small r, big d. The research involved is specifically in developing the manufacturing methods required to produce catalyst rods that when we build a thousand of them, 999 of them work. At that point, we will feel comfortable going to OEMs, original equipment manufacturers and saying, we now have the ability to provide you with as many catalyst rods as you need to start building products. Even in the Middle East, they know that the end of carbon is nigh. And those countries are trying to diversify their economies and and build economies that are based on something other than oil, which everybody knows has to go away. They're talking about possibly... Putting money up front to control the manufacturing in a region of the catalyst rods mm-hmm. and yeah 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 yeah. so that that money between to you know successfully negotiate those contracts, that's going to provide uh, a, a big chunk of money necessary to really speed this up. So, you know, we are, I, I am bound and determined to get this into the market because I know that it can. I'm, I'm not a gambler in spite of what I'm doing. I'm not a gambler because uh, I know that I can get this into the marketplace. So, you know, once I get to the point where I can manufacture a thousand catalyst frauds, uh, I will feel comfortable licensing. Actually, I, I've already sold a few licenses, but I will be comfortable putting it into production. So when you when you produce anything in in high volume, if you have fewer than than three nines pass rate at the end of the line, you just wind up with too much scrap. There's it just becomes it's it's un, it's just not workable. You just can't do it. Uh, this this is the background that that not only myself but much of my team comes from from taking products into the marketplace where they're actually manufactured. So when we get to that point, that then gives us, you know, the uh, a pretty amazing revenue stream where we can really refine that and get that up to five or or even beyond five nines uh, pass rate at the end of the manufacturing process. So that's uh, so so that's that's what remains to be done. You know, we can already very routinely. And the other thing that's really cool about about the what we've done lately is that. Uh, not just that we have, we can routinely produce more than twice as much thermal energy out as electrical energy put into the system, but we have four test systems in our lab in Berkeley. And we can shuffle, we have catalyst, we have <laughs> we have a lot of catalyst rods that we've made that produce a gain of one. You put 50 watts in and you get 50 watts out. Uh We have catalyst rods that produce 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, 1.7. And people are like, well, this is due to measurement error. Well, if that was true, when I took the catalyst tube out of a system where it was producing 2x and put it into the system where the catalyst rod was giving us a unity power gain, we would continue to see unity power gain in that system. And when I put the 1X rod into the system that had been producing 2X, it would continue to produce 2X. But the the, the performance always follows the catalyst tube. So that catalyst tube that is producing 2X routinely now has produced 2X in three of the four test systems.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Where can listeners go to learn more about Brillouin Energy and follow the development of the hot tube?
1: So you can go to our website, www.brillouinenergy.com, uh, B-R-I-L-L-O-U-I-N-E-N-E-R-G-Y.com. If you're curious about our upcoming creative fundraising efforts, You can also go to a website called BEC.LTD. It's very, very limited, but there will be just shy of 2,000 people that will actually have the ability to take part in the future profits of Brillouin Energy. Mm.
0: So that's BEC.LTD.
1: Yep. Yep. And so people will be able to bid on the ability to get an account with Brillouin Energy. And we are going to create a billion units that those uh, 1,990-some accounts will each get a portion of those billion units. And then the profits, a portion of the profits from Berlin Energy will be distributed amongst that very select group. We'll see what people are willing to pony up to access that.
0: Well, that sounds very exciting. A chance to participate in new energy technology for our future. Love it.
1: And and you're funding the decarbonization of humanity's energy requirements. That's really... Something spectacular that people can can do because it's we we created a document. It's interesting. We created a document six six months ago, six or eight months ago. It's our under promise, over deliver. What we can achieve with various amounts of money, and we said for three million dollars, we are ninety nine point nine nine confident percent confidence level that we will be able to achieve two (laughs) x. Since that time, we've raised less than $200,000. And yet here we are. We are able to reliably produce more than 2x. So uh, we are hopeful that this uh, BEC uh, limited, BEC LTD, will allow us to bring in enough capital to not just achieve uh, uh, you know, much more than 2x, but to get the manufacturing facilities together to show that we can build 1,000 catalyst rods and have 999 of them work.
0: Uh, Robert Gottes, I want to congratulate you on the achievements with the Brillouin hot tube, getting twice the energy out reliably. It's uh, a big step for commercialization. Thank you for speaking with us today.
1: Great talking with you, Ruby.
0: We've been speaking with Robert Goddess, the President and Chief Technical Officer of Brillouin Energy Corporation, about the Brillouin Hot Tube, a Lener reactor in development for useful commercial markets. And that's it for today. Find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.